Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Wednesday afternoon, it's kind of sister. As I um, said, I'm going to try to share a few ideas just floating around in my head now about Purim. Maybe some of it will be used to you. Maybe not. It's up to you. I'll just share a couple of different thoughts that are coming through my mind today. Uh, this is all part of uh, A. Bluck's very uh, kind uh, offer to sponsor talks I'm doing on Purim, all one big thing. And so consider this the second half of yesterday or something like that. Um now, anyway, let's get down to business. You got, and I was just thinking while I was driving today, one of the things you got to do when, it, when you think about Purim, and you know me being my nature, you have to think about the historical context. Uh, now, I don't mean the secular historical context, but there is none. One of the big, only from Jews believe the historicity of the Purim there, because they don't have any records of King Ahasuerus and all that. On the other hand, there's very little that survived from the Persian records, and we go with the, uh, the Seder Olam. This is famous. This is where the big fights are about the chronology, what they call the Persian Gulf, because we have like four Persian kings, and in secular, they have like ten Persian kings, and so forth. If you don't know what I'm talking about, and if you're interested in the subject, whatsoever, get a hold of the Art Scroll uh, Second Temple Period, I think it's called, you know, by Shani. And in the back, there's an article from Rabbi Goldworm, who knew what he's talking about. He has a very forefrontal interpretation, but so what? Called the Jewish chronology problem, or some name like that. And he deals head-on with this very famous issue. But let's put that aside uh, from our purposes today and simply say, from a Chazal point of view, the uh, big issue, of course, with the story is that, uh, you know, they had a big sin. Rav Shem Yochai and the Chacham, everybody knows what I'm talking about. One of them said, Rav Shem Yochai and his students, one says, and the other said, I think that's how it goes. So this was a, a teacher and his students of Shem Yochai. And um, they're asking, what was the sin that almost caused Klai Yisrael to be killed? Uh, I think. Uh, now, I, did, I they can't mean that particular sin, because it ain't that big of a deal. I think what it means is, it's um, which, what we would say today, typical. How would you describe that typical sin? It's like if I would say, you know what the big sin is now? A guy goes to the Kotal and he's uh, talking on a cell phone or maybe watching a movie. That's a typical sin, get it? It would encapsulate American consumerism and materialism, even in a Malkin country. You know, that kind of thing. What's a typical, right? It's either Nen and Mr. Dostoyev, they were voluptuaries and, you know, uh, they couldn't resist it. And even though they should have had a sense of Jewish honor, according to rabbinic literature, as we all know, was throwing a party to celebrate the uh, fact that Basin Mikdash was not going to be rebuilt. He counted the 70 years in his way. So, it's bad enough if a Jew has to go, but you enjoy it. You know? Anybody's ever been in business, I've had this occasion once in a while in college. you got to go to some kind of a party or this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, it's necessary. So, it's endured, not enjoyed. You follow? Uh, as my son told me once, you, know, you have to walk around whole time holding 
a glass of Coke in your hand, you know. Okay, but no, but it wasn't like that. And, they, and then Mr. Dosso said they would consider the problem would be something like a lack of self-respect or materialism or something like that. You could play on that theme if you wish to. But as you remember, he didn't say no. It's because Ishtach will sell him. Bow down to an idol. Uh, Mordechai won't bow down. Uh, but they all did. Uh, which idol? Rashi, first of all, don't say. So Rashi comes up with the only thing he can come up with, which is back in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, which was not too long before the Purim story, so they wouldn't bow down. They were thrown in the fiery furnace. Uh, if you go back to Gemara's, they were the only ones who did so. The other Jews were ashamed because of their heroism. Sigmar in Sanhedrin somewhere once did it with Art Scroll. And, uh, you know, you see that they bowed down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. To be perfectly honest, you have the same problem because the story of Nebuchadnezzar's idols in the book of Daniel, I believe it's chapter 2 or 3, and um, it's chapter 3, actually, and... Uh, there was an idol in Bikas Dura, in other words, in a certain place, in Bovel, in Babylon, and the locals bowed down to it, and not Hanan Mishal Azariah. Well, not all the Jews of 127 promises, so just like it says, Osim B'Shushi Yargu, and the others should not be killed for going to the party, because only Shushan Jews went to the party. Similarly, only the Jews, you know, who were in Bovel at the time of Hanan Mishal Azariah, uh, perhaps, should be Chaya, but not the rest of Chal Yisrael. You know, it's... It, it's problems with these agaritas because, you know, to find consistency in all of them is a wonderful challenge. It's fun, but it's a challenge. You know, it's a challenge. Anyhow, uh, the historical context, uh, I think, uh, today is a psychological one. We uh, we always have this theme in Purim, Kim of Akibla, and they always bring up Kuflam Harkagigas. They got held the mountain over their heads back at Harsinai, which is true. And they say, Mikamadolarabarisa, that they had a tie against the Torah. Does that mean nobody was keeping the Torah for a thousand years or doing so resentfully? I don't think so. I think what it means is like this when times get tough, you bring that out. It's like a husband and wife to have a fight. And, you know, he or she, usually she, shall bring out. And by the way, you also didn't do this 10 years ago. You know what I mean? In other words, it's, it's always there as a weapon. So the Benegi throw. Modal Barola Raisa, we didn't want this lousy religion in the first place, and you forced it on us. When times were good, they didn't talk like that. So in the times of David Amalekh, I'm sure, for example, or Shlomo, they didn't say, Yomikam Modal Rabbala Raisa. Then the Torah was fun. <laughs> you know, there's no downside to being Jewish. The opposite. And in general, when they had their own country, at least. So Hashem took them out of Egypt, gave them another land. They have their Karkov. All right. When somebody's holding on to the land that he got, as a result, he sees from Israel. And the crossing of the desert for 40 years with miracles. And the miraculous conquest to whatever they did of Canaan. And now this guy has his own farm. He's not going to say, Modor Rebel, right? So, on the other hand, when you lose it all, and now you're exiled to Babylonia, and you're like third-class citizen, and life stinks, and there's no plus to being Jewish whatsoever, you have no land, no nothing, then you pull out you know, from your pocket, the old complaints. And by the way, already long ago, uh, this is confirmed. This is the background, in my opinion, of the events of Purim. Because it happened not long beforehand. Uh, and the Ishtachel itself, in my opinion, is bound down to Homelands, you'll see. Uh, 
I mean, Rashi learns it differently, but I think you learn it the way I said it. And I'm sure there's got to be some unfortunate that learned it that way. It's so obvious. You know, I just haven't gone through an inventory. I'm too lazy to go out and pull out my rusty, trusty Manas Halevi. I'm sure he'll find someone who holds that way. Now, uh, it's famous in Yecheskel. The famous uh, prophecy of chapter 20 in Yecheskel, uh, where that there's a famous Chazal, uh, Gemara uh, in Sanhedrin actually, uh, where it tells the story of some happened time Yecheskel, which is right before our time, a Purim. Yecheskel is is a prophet in Babel, exiled like Mordechai from the Golosio Yochen, and um, is giving all these nevuas, usually of an admonitory nature, to Jews who are now have lost everything. And the question is, what what is the um, psychological motive for continuing to try to keep up Jewish survival if you've lost everything? So this is the kind of question we're not so unfamiliar with because a lot of people face it after the Holocaust, a lot of survivors. As you know, plenty of people lost their faith and everything else after going through Auschwitz. And you can't blame them, I mean, you know. It's not for us to point the finger after they went through that stuff. Uh, but it's understandable, but it's a tragedy. So imagine, for example, a guy uh, who survived Hitler and then at the end married a guy after the war. There are plenty of people like that, I want you to know. Plenty of people. They don't like to talk about it. I remember my father told me, and the DPs they were doing, man, German women, it's unbelievable. Anything's possible. Um, so you, I mean, you hear the yeush, you get it? Um, fortunately, we, the people listening to this podcast, I'm sure, 99% at least, don't have any kind of experience like that. And so we're connected with our families, with our Masoro, with our fam- with our background, at least with this culture, with this set of religious ideas, you know. But people who are going through to Schmettert, um, I don't, I don't want to be woke and talk about Ukraine, but you know, if, you, if, you, if everything gets destroyed, uh, all of a sudden you're looking at a different world. And then you experience Yush. What the heck? And then you say, you know, I, I don't care about being Jewish or, or whatever it is anymore. I don't care about anything else anymore. It's a tragedy, but it's not unheard of or uncommon. And in the book of Yechezka, if you look at chapter 20, this is very famous. It, uh, it says, this is God telling the Nobi Yechezka to tell the Jews, that what you are thinking about Ain't going to happen. You guys who are now the Jews exiled to Babylon who lost everything. You say the heck with it. Okay? We're not going to be Jewish anymore. We resign from Judaism. As Rashi I'm looking at says, We unhitch ourselves from God's yoke. We sign out. So they were not of the opinion once a Jew, always a Jew. They were the opinion that Judaism is like a club. If you don't like it anymore, you check out. There are, by the way, there are such shittas. It's just not the way we them, but there are such shittas. And that's how people were at that time. We want to be like and worship idols. That's what everybody else is doing. And so... I don't know why Rashi didn't bring this one down, but okay. Uh, and and God says, I'm not going to let it happen. 
Hashem says, I swear, God says, I swear, I will rule over you. Now, I'll force you to be Jewish. I will continue to be your God, even if it requires Yod Chazaka in terms of punishment. That's a hard one to translate in terms of punishment. And poured out wrath. So basically, I'll stir up anti-Semitism, and it won't be possible. So just imagine, for example, somebody like by Hitler. He said, I'm checking out, I'm leaving Judaism. It don't matter. Hitler went by the race. And if you're, you were Jewish, uh, it doesn't matter what you change your religion ten times. They're going to kill you anyway. So that's like, There's a very famous Gemara, which says, I like it, notice what they have at the bottom, Likute Shas, a bunch of Jews came before the prophet Ezekiel. He said, repent. Why should we repent? He said, If you have an Ebed that was owned by one master, and now another master owns him, the first master has no tithes on him. So we used to belong to God, but now we belong to um, Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered us. He took us away. You know, uh, we don't have to listen anymore. So these are people who tied it. I'm just trying to show you, this is the mood in the generation of Mordechai and Esther and Achashverosh and those types of people. Uh, people say, I guess, you know, uh, we don't have to continue being Jewish anymore. To, at least there's a good side to this, which is we don't have to keep kosher. <laughs> you understand? We once had a land, we no longer a land, so we're out of here. Uh, I can't tell you how many people in Jewish history have taken that route. I was just teaching a class yesterday about the 1492 in Spain. How many Jews in Spain did that route? They said, well, we're not Jewish anymore. That's the end of it, period. Now, um, in that context, I'm sure there are plenty of people that bow down to idols, either because they're resigning from Judaism, or they figure... The whole thing's kavum hard gifts. We have a modor rabbi right? So those they had attitude problem. Get it? You have attitude problem, and they resented the fact, you know, of their situation. And Hishtach would tell them. Therefore, I think is mashman the time of Mordechai. Uh, the Gemara has a story that Haman wore a tzelim. You know, uh, that's a midrashic word. You could certainly learn it that way. Be honest, the neighbor says I mentioned yesterday. In my remarks that he had it on, then he took it off. That's his way of reading the story of the interaction between Haman and Mordechai. Uh, you know, because Bayar Haman came, Mordechai, Korea, Mishtach, low. And according to Abish, it's low. Even when I take off the idol, you still won't bow down. So that means you're dissing me, low. And therefore, Moyele, he got real angry. Well, the Pasuk said, I'll, I'll rule over you with Chemoshvucha. Well, Haman had Bayamole, Hamachema. So you see, he's like a, a, a Haman is, would be the, the fulfillment of the prophecy that if you guys say Niyakagayim, I'll bring up a Melchai Haman. The Gemara more or less says it. It just doesn't connect it to the Pasig in, in Yecheskel as I just did. But you all know that, uh, you know, the Hashem is, uh, it says in the Gemara Megillah, if the Jews go off to Derek, Hashem will make a Melchai Haman and he'll force him to do Tshuva. Gedola Hasaras HaTabas Mimeches Nevi'im. That when the king took off the ring, then they really did Shua, more than all the Musa Shmuzas of all the prophets. Now, um,
because they saw they're going to get killed, you know. Now, the thing is like this. Uh, Mordechai won't bow down. But it's Masha, everybody else did. Um, not all the Jews in 127 provinces. Uh, it's, uh, you know, Haman hung around the, uh, the Shushan Abira, the royal uh, palace enclave. So why is God angry at the whole Jewish people? So it sounds like, they, you know, that they stomp out down to idol. Meaning that if you wanted to get ahead, you had to, you know, participate in the local rituals, whether a person believed in it or not. It's called Chuvah, uh, as I mentioned yesterday. It could even be that they set up statues of Haman all over the place because he was now the new the new prime minister. If I was Jewish and a prime minister was from Amalek, I ain't going to take this guy off. You know, I'm not going to take him off. I'll just bow down in the heck with it. Moreover, another piece of the historical context from the Torah perspective is the question of whether or not you're dealing with the Yahargval Yavar situation. Because we're used to saying the big three, but that came later in history. Notice the clarification of that issue. That's the big three. Gilarai Shvichadam Abedazara was is discussing the Gemara Sanhedrin. They decide Nimnivagamra, I believe the language is, in Aliyah, somebody in Lud, uh, that you know that they have the big three. Everything else Yavar Abel Yarig, but the big three is Yehargwal Yavar. Well, that was during the time of Bar Kochma and, and the Asarugimalchus and the Hadrianic persecutions, and Nimnivagamra means they voted on it. So notice they had to vote. In the Roman times, what do you give your life up for and what do you not give your life up for? And if they voted on it, that means there were different opinions and they and they had to, one unanimous, get it? Nimnivagamra means they took a vote. So there was a school that said like this and a school that said like this. And we go, we follow the majority. But there's always been a strong body of opinion, which may surprise people unless they learn the Gemara about Azar and Sanhedrin, that says that it's the big two and not the big three. And some even say uh, that Rabbi Shemal would hold there's not even the big three. I saw it in the Masifta somewhere, in Sanhedrin. Uh, the, so to be clar- to clarify what I'm saying, is my is in the Gemara between Rabbi Shemal and the Chachamim. The Chacham say the big three, and Rabbi Shemal said the big two. Uh, Gila Rayas and, and, and Shvi Chazdom, you have to give it your heart while you have But not a Vodazor. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. Not a Vodazor. Um, because you'd think it'd be the opposite. If you're supposed to give your life for anything, it's we have a Zara. Mind you, our ancestors, our Ashkenazic ancestors, certainly did that in the Crusades. When they committed mass suicide, that was their way of Yehargwal Yavar. That's how they did it. And, I I mean, I hear the time, but I'm just telling you that's what they did. And that was the case of a Zara, as they perceived it. Wasn't the case of Gil Arise, wasn't the case of Shri Chazdaman. So, uh, it's a big two. If it is a big two, then Mordechai was wrong. Why can't you bow down to Haman? Because he has an idol on his chest? You don't have to, uh, that's, that's not um, uh, a sin. Right? And notice it's Yavar of al uh, you, you, you might say like this, you got to do what you got to do. There's a whole history of this in Shulchan Aruch and those kind of literature about crosses, Shesev Erev. You know, Jews very often lived in places, the Middle Ages particularly, in which you had to bow down as a sign of respect to a king, a duke, a bishop, a prince, a knight, and so forth. And a lot of times these guys in the Middle Ages would have 
we've been wearing crosses, you know, like you see in the movies or in paintings, you know, as, as part of their uniform. Uh, and uh, here's a Jewish guy. He's coming in to see a prince. The guy has a, a jacket, and the jacket has got a cross or two. This was just standard wear for the nobility. And the Jews comes in and doesn't show respect, doesn't bow to him, you're going to get in trouble. Um, so what do you do? And indeed, it's mamish like the time of Haman. Uh, some were machmir. That would be what you call chasidi ashkenaz. And, you know, they would uh, move heaven and earth not to do it. And others, you know, look at the Ramon, others, they say you could do it. Because you're not bowing down to uh, to, 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 to a different religion. It's a sign of respect to the person wearing it. Uh, I remember the Trumas Hadesh has a nice story where he says that um, there was a certain knight or a prince. And he knew he had to deal with a rabbi or something like that. And he knew the guy had issues with the cross. And he was nice enough not to be a schmo. He could have insisted he come in. If you want to do business with me, you got to bow down to me, which you also bow down and bow the cross. Again, simply something decorative. But this guy was a nice guy, and he would cover it up. So notice when the Jew came in, to use modern terminology, if the from guy came in, they would put it on a jacket. That way you couldn't see the cross he's wearing underneath. And, and when you bow as a sign of respect, you're not bowing down to the guy. But, so, so, but, but other people, most Jews, I'll bet you, you know, just bow down to the guy in the heck with it. Meaning, it's not a religious thing. You're not saying you're a Christian. By bowing down to the person wearing the cross doesn't mean you agree with Christianity. It's a sign of respect. It's <laughs> the same thing. So people were angry at Mordechai. The Gemara even says, um, do you remember this? The Gemara, this is worthwhile. You know, the Gemara, the Talmud Babi is really wonderfully complicated when it comes to history because it always brings a jumble of different Mesorahs. Uh, and they don't have to connect with each other because that's not how the Agatha works. But you have leftovers from different schools of thought all over Shas. And one of them has to do with the Mordechai story. And did the Chazal have a good opinion of him or a bad opinion? And in the Gemara, let's see here, that's Yud Beis, Ahmed Beis, when they're talking about the fact that, what well, was he, a Benjaminite or a Judahite? You know, Ish Yehudi, Mordechai Ben Yamini, so make up your mind. Is he Ben Yamini or is he Ben Yehudi? You're from the tribe of Yehuda. And different ways of explaining it. And um, listen to this. Listen to this. Rabban and Omri, bottom of Yud Beis on base. Mishpachas Masagra Zulu This dissonance or difference between the fact that one place it says he was Ben Yamin and the other place it says from Yehuda can be explained positively. That both tribes were claiming paternity because everybody wants to be part of a winner. Mishpachas Yehuda Omeris Anogarn de Misyal Mordechai. I'm the cause, Yehuda says. That Mordechai was born, because Mordechai, according to the tradition, it says Ben Yarbin Shimi. If they identify Shimi with Shimi Ben Gera, who threw stones at Dovah and was running away from Amalek, and Dovah could have killed him, but he didn't. As he was killed later by by Shlomo, so because Dovah didn't kill him, he was able to get married and have children, and eventually Mordechai was descended from him. So the tribe of Yehuda claim that they're responsible for Mordechai. And Mishpachas Binyamin Omeris Minai But Binyamin said baloney. Genetically, he's a Benjamin. He comes from the tribe of Binyamin. So that means 
that that Chazal that I just read you, that Agadita represents a school of thought, the thought which views Mordechai as a positive, and he's a hero, and therefore everyone wants a piece of the action, and each tribe is claiming paternity, and that's why Ish Yehudi Abira Yehuda says, "Well, I'm the one who caused it." However, however, immediately afterwards, Rova the Amora presents a different tradition which is diametrically opposed. And they see Mordechai was bad news. I'll say it again, Mordechai was bad news. How can you say that? Rav Amr, Knesset Yisrael, Amr, Le'idach Giso. Klal Yisrael, Knesset Yisrael. Right? The Jewish people applied it the opposite. Idach Giso. Ru'u me'osa li'yehudi u'mashilom le'yumini. He's ishihudi ishimini, meaning he's a doggone Yehuda who causes trouble. And he's a doggone Benjamin who causes trouble. Meh also the Yehudi, the little cut the double shimmy. Right? This Yahweh Mordechai. The Miknimi Haman. Look at the Ish Yehudi, the whole doggone story of Purim, and all the fright he caused us, and the close call that we could all have been killed, is due to that son of a gun Mordechai, who comes from Yehuda, meaning since David didn't kill Shimmy, so it's Yahweh Mordechai that, that enabled him to be the ancestor of Mordechai. Wait a minute. The Miknebe Haman. And he got Haman angry at the Jews. So in other words, the whole trouble came because of Mordechai. That's a Gemara reading, yeah? Umashil me Yemini. Right? And on the other hand, I can throw it at Benjamin. The law, Katli Shola Agag Disyomi Haman, the Messiah Israel. So Mordechai, you know, you are like bad news. You're connected with the tribe of Yehuda because Yehuda enabled you to be born and you caused the trouble to get Haman angry. So it sounds like the, when it says the Mekani Be Haman, how is he Mekani Haman? The answer is he wouldn't bow down to him. That's the story. Right? You know, to kill the Jews. Uh, and you and the tribe of Binyamin, you caused the birth of, of Haman. You understand, as we all know the story of Shaul in the Haftarah this week. So that's putting it like it's all negative. You see? And then what it means is, Pirshalim Menor makes a Sanhedrin. A lot of people, even after the miracle was over, blamed Mordechai, you caused all trouble in the first place. And then you get down to the whole question, I mean, depending how you want to look at it, you could be very halachically technical and say they were arguing whether it's the big two or the big three. And if it's the big two, then you shouldn't have done it. Uh... And, uh, you know, as far as Farhesia is concerned, there weren't any Jews, you could say, living in, in the city, so who's supposed to know? Uh, there are other ways around that also. But, on the other hand, uh, Mordechai didn't agree with a, a single word of this. And Mordechai says, no, the trouble is, I'm the only person that's right, you're all wrong. Uh, that, people don't like somebody like that. <laughs> Let's put it that way. People like somebody like that. Now, what's interesting is that Mordechai has this policy of not bowing. He's defined that way. And did I don't know if you noticed this. This is definitely something you can say for important. Look very closely and read the Megillah. Esther never bows. Isn't that interesting? Esther never bows. Not in the Megillah. They never used the word Mishtachvet by Esther. It's, in, it's, it's, it's a fascinating. So notice she's on the Mordechai team. 
because he raised her or he trained her. We always translate by he omen is hadasah. He has terbaster though. Translate by he omen. Omen means to, to 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 raise somebody to train them, right? Amen, amanut, right? So in other words, he educated her. He put the hashkafas into her. Uh, whether he married her or not is always a big debate. We all know the famous Gemara. Um, believe me, I get it. We all know the famous Gemara is that, you know, Mordecai was married to uh, Esther, but it doesn't say so in the Megillah at all. And anybody who knows the sugya of Yehargbal Yavar, which is one of the classic sugyas out there, when you get to the Rishonim, and they get to the question of Esther, Karka Olam, and Osatzmo, and Parhesia, and this and that and the other, you'll see Duran and I think the Balmore and others, uh, they'll end up saying like this, uh, we don't follow the the, the Agatha that says they were married. You understand? No, who says they were married? That's, that's one opinion. The other opinion is they were not married. Uh, like many Rishonim say that because of certain kashas that arise in learning the Sugi Vihargwal Yavar, those of you who know what I'm talking about will know, and those who don't, you know, just go and look it up or something. So, all it says is he raised her. Okay? He raised her. Mind you, Mordecai was a married man. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but I mean, uh, you, you may not know this, but um, it says in the matter somewhere, uh, I have it from before, that Mordecai's wife, uh, Nurse Esther, you hear what I just said? Mordecai's wife was Esther's nurse, and um, I forget what, and, and he gave her a chinuch or something, something along those lines. Uh, where's that Medrash? It's here somewhere. This, this is worth it. Uh, takes a second. Yeah, here it is. I'm sorry about that. It's in the Medrash Tehillim, Chaf Simon Yud. You look it up. Medrash Tehillim. It says, Ishto shal Mordechai ha'isimenek. It says, Esther, or Mordechai ha'isimenek. So it was Mordechai was an old... Some people will possibly read that Gemara very superficially, that Agadita, and they'll say Mordechai and Esther were, were roughly the same age. Maybe Mordechai was 20 years older or something like that. No. Mordechai was an older married man. Think about what I'm about to say. So, let's get this straight now. When was the Gauls Yehoyachin that Mordechai was there and he left with the others? Well, Achashverosh threw the party when he calculated 70 years were up. The 70 years, um, let's say he was off a little bit, but somebody, roughly 70 years. And the Gulzi Oyechim is another, so 10 years, so it's 80 years. And Mordechai was already a member of Lishka's Agazas, if you follow that Agatha. So in those, he was at least in his, I mean, at least in his 20s. You know, maybe it's like a Vilna Gond that at 20 was already ill. Uh, that. So the guy's 100 years old. Do you get what I'm saying? Let me just do a little bit of math. So uh, how old is Esther? So he's a 100-year-old guy. He's married to what? A 20-year-old girl? I mean, anything's possible. Doesn't seem that way. Plus, Mordechai couldn't have been on the Sanhedrin back in the time of Yechania if he wasn't married. That's a din. And didn't have children, by the way. You know, I think it's Allah, you know, someone who's childless, it can't be on Sanhedrin, isn't there a din like that? So, um, I'm just pointing out that 
there's a gigantic age difference over there. And if Esther was a cousin of his and her parents died in childbirth, mother died in childbirth, so somebody had to go and, and raise her. I'm not going with that famous weird chazal that Mordechai nursed her. We'll put that aside in the in the, in the Medrash in, in Noah. But let's just go with regular. This makes some sense. Ishtil shal Mordechai haimenech is Esther. You know, Mordechai haimenech Okay. Uh, which, by the way, is definitely how the story has to be. I mean, if you say they were married in some sense, if you say they were married, and the Gemara even has a God tell you know, that she, Yoshevis Vitavelis Becheka Shazu, as well as tough. Uh, because, like I say, he's over 100. If you say that uh, that they were married, uh, you can be sure that, uh, let's put it this way, it wouldn't have occurred to the Persians when they snatched her for the beauty contest. I mean, they knew she's living in Mordechai's house, but if she's like uh, 20, and he, which it seems, you know, or 30 or whatever, and he's 100 or 110 or 120 for all we know, because I'm just playing it safe and saying he was 20 years old at the time of Kozio Yochan. Maybe he was 30 or 40. Who knows? Uh, nobody would have said that they're married. You understand? Uh, and to be perfectly honest, you have to learn sort of, if they knew they came from Mordechai's house, you have to learn that, uh, you know, they didn't know she's Jewish. I mean, maybe they figure he's raising an orphan girl. You know, it's a, it's, 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 that's one of the gaps in the narrative they have to be very thoughtful about. It's in there. But, ha- but put all that aside. She definitely held like, like, like uh, Mordechai because you look through the uh, Megillah and she never bows. Okay? Uh, when she, I just took the trouble now to look before I did this. Uh, for example, when she says she has to go into the king to win his favor, l- read the words closely. In the beginning of Perik Hey, Vahibayom Ashlishi, Vatil Bash Esther Malchus, Vatamo Bachatzer Beis Amelach, Vinivis, Nochach Beis Amelach, okay. Vamelach Yosheva Kisi Machozo Beis Amelachus, Nochach Penei Abais. So she walks into the inner room where the king is sitting on the throne. Listen very closely. Vahikiros Amelachus, Esther Malcha, Omenis Bechatzer, Nosachem Beinov. As soon as he saw her, Nosachem Beinov, Vayoshan Amelachus there, Shabida Zabiado, Vatikrav Esther. Don't say she bows down. But you know, it, she didn't need to. She found favor in his eyes. All she had to do, right? To touch his uh, staff. And then he said, oh, whatever you want. She invites him to a party. No bowing. Why doesn't it say Esther walked in and bowed before the king? But none of that. That's in hey. Now let's look at Vov. Uh, Yoni Vav, so we uh, go to Zion, I guess. Uh, here we go. Vayov Amelch, Esther Malka, Vahoman, Lishtosim Mir Malka, he goes over here. Vayov Amelch, Esther Gamma Yomashini Bishnei Ayayin, Mashelo Sech, etc. She doesn't bow down. Even when she's pleading, Vatan Esther Malka Vatomer, Imosozachim, Benecha, Hamelch, Vimal Melch, Tov, Tinosim Lapshi Bishelo Si, Vami Bavakoshasi, and then she says, Homana Ra is there. She doesn't bow to the king. They don't do that <laughs> in her family. There's no bowing to people, apparently. You know? And no bowing to people. And um, the next one is even better. Look at Perk. Uh, yeah. Ches. It's Mamash Meduyuk. Ches is when they already. Right? So fine. She appoints Mordechai, he, he appoints Mordechai as prime minister and puts Esther in charge of the house of Haman. 
Listen very closely, very closely to the language. Vatosev is there, vatadaber lefnei melch, vatipol lefnei raglov, vateich vatiskan and lo. Lahavris Roman agogi with machshal shal yehudi. Right? She throws her vatipol lefnei raglov. What does it not say? She throws herself at his feet like in a movie, you know, in an emotional thing. It's not bowing. It's hugging the guy's feet. You understand? Which, of course, is a gesture of desperation and so forth. It's so very, very dramatic. Okay? She's a drama queen. She's a queen using drama. But she doesn't bow down. I think that's kind of interesting. Even though she's pleading... And I'm not finished. See, the always skirting. So she learned a trick from Mordechai, who used to be good at this, I guess, which was, you know, how shall I put it? You can be discreet. You can show great respect without having actually to go and do the physical uh, because that sounds like something religious. And apparently, Rajbi says the sin was Hishtachbul its own. So it sounds like they could have gotten around it some other way. And Hishtachbul its own. And Mordechai won't be Hishtachbul its own. And uh, it won't be Hishtachbul at home either. Who he considers it to be like a Tselem or something. That's, that part is unclear. But Esther, by Heomanus Esther, she certainly follows his policy, you know, not to do that. Now, as I said before, Jews did that kind of thing, probably in the context of Yish. You know, Jews at that time were like in a bad mood, and they were in exile. And may I say, 70 years were up and nothing had happened, so their mom was in a bad mood. What do I mean? Nobody knew the Cheshman exactly for 70 years. Um... The famous story of Belshazzar back in the time of Daniel is he calculated 70 years, the Gemara tells us, and 70 years were up from his calculation, and that's why he took out the Kalim of and had that party where the hand appeared on the wall and wrote down, uh, in front of the wall, a disembodied hand, and wrote down that you're doomed. Mene Mene to kill a farson. Achashverosh, the Gemara tells us, said, Hu tov, ani loeta, you know, that uh, Belshazzar got it wrong, but I'll get it right. And that's why he made his party in the third year of his Malchus. Daniel says, Daniel himself, I think in chapter 7 or 8, says, I was Ma'ayin in his farm and he was fasting all the rest of it because it seemed that all the Cheshbonas of 70 years were up and nothing was happening. What is the natural reaction to that? You get it? If there was a prophecy of deliverance and it's not happening... The natural reaction is to say like this, then it's baloney. Or Hashem changed his mind. Or we're never getting out of here. Or this is the new reality we got to get used to. So let's do Mishnah HaOtzal, you know, get along with the new program. I think a major part of the story of Purim is this whole Onwee business. Mordechai said, no, it's the 70 years are not up. And it's going to happen. And of course Mordechai was right, but I'm just saying, even though the Cheshbonas were not easy to follow. After it's all over, in hindsight, we know that the beginning point was, uh, you know, the year of the Korban Beis Amish, I guess, whatever it was. Not the Golsio Yachin, and not the year that Nebuchadnezzar took over the world, whatever the other mistakes the Cheshbonis were. It's always easy in hindsight to say, oh, this is what it was all the time. How come you didn't see it? But people always get these things wrong. 
Look at the Rambam's famous discussion in the Igeris Taman about how many people got the things wrong uh, in his time and in the time of uh, of, of the uh, Mitzrayim. He, he has a very eloquent about that. So you can see that lots of Jews said the heck with it. And um, the the way they justified it would be Kuflam HaKigigas. I mean, that's how you have to justify it. You know, Mudah Rabla Raisa, of course, as a result of the Purim story, there's a certain vindication. Um, that doesn't take away the resentment people had at the fact that, that, that they had to scare their lives. Um, I remember the Medish Rab at the very beginning of the Book of Esther says Rav used to begin the speech on Purim, so it was three days of sheer terror. Um, it's easy for us today, doing a podcast, you're listening in America, Israel, wherever, it's a security, it's plenty of food, all the rest of it. Thank God we don't have the terror. Um, the people lived through the Second World War, just, just the pachat, you get it? But this is a terrible thing. For three days they saw You know, Purim was a terrible time. The end was good, but a terrible time. You can't say, well, just look at the end. The end turned out good. The people that went through the Tsaris apparently continued to resent it. And they never forgave Mordechai for that. That's what makes them in Sanhedrin. Rashi says because he, he gave up learning. They, but based on the other Chazals, and the Gemara I just read before, they resented the fact, as the Medrash puts it, Atoma Pilenu that you are causing us to get killed, putting this, you're going to bring us down, Mapilenu, by the sword of Haman. They were angry at Mordechai. And uh, like I said before, from a theological perspective, you can always say, well, he was vindicated. And from here you see, you know, that's how you should look at it. That's how Dessler tries to do that approach. But the people at that time didn't like it. And um, if it is, for example, the big two and not the big three, you, you put us all in, in, in harm's way. On the other hand, the counter-narrative was, since he was vindicated, so um, I guess the impatience that they had that, they, that the uh, Yeshua hadn't come yet, uh, you know, sort of paled possibly into insignificance, because it says that that undid the Kuflam Harkegigas. Uh, but I'm not sure, because you see there are remnants of such feelings even later on, uh, like the Gemara just mentioned about. So I throw all these out at you to share with you that, you know, Purim is kind of complicated in very interesting ways because um, the story is very brief and, uh, you know, a lot of these issues are not clarified, let's put it that way. Uh, even the Kofmark of Gigas is not so pasha because, you know, it means kfiyah, but there's, let me put it this way. In Jewish law, we have legitimate kfiyah and illegitimate kfiyah. It's a complicated subject. I don't want to take up too long. Um, you do have a rule called Toyuba Zovin Zvini. Zvini, if you force somebody to sell something, it counts because Gemir's Das is enough. On the other hand, we also have a famous Kofmark where the Rambam says unreasonable stubbornness 
can be trumped by Tfio. Is the time for people to do it. Were the Jewish people being unreasonable at the time over here? I mean, the Rama was quite eloquent on this. He says, uh, you know, because you can be Kofar Mitzazase, right? So, uh, um, you know, who on a Satsuma would die to a raw? So, Rotsalias Misrael, you know, the Begitro should talk about the Rama famously says, the guy really wants to do the right thing, but his stubbornness is, is blocking him. I mean, that's an open ended uh, kind of uh, argument. Uh, now we're living through the corona fights. This is Mamish what's going on. The vaxxers, anti vaxxers, you know, one of them says, You should want to do this. In fact, you don't want to do this. You're just being petulant and perverse. The other guy says, No, I'm not. You had those kind of fights in theological ways back at the time of Purim. Uh, anyway, if you pursue any of these, especially the idea that she doesn't bow, you know, it's, it's interesting. She doesn't bow. She, uh, you know, skirts around it. And the king still liked her, okay? So she knew how to play the game. Shows you that that's, you know, that seems to be the policy of Mordecai. Because um, at the end, he wins. But, uh, you know, it wasn't so much along the way. Anyway, those are just a few random ideas uh, that you can uh, play with. I'm serious, uh, you know, play with. Um, and uh, see what you come up with on this forum. Once again, I want to thank uh, the Gluck. And uh, with that, I wish you a fair conform. I'm having my own thing here tomorrow. Like I say, most of the people listening are not in the Baltimore area. If it's the Baltimore area, certainly welcome. We're going to have Minicha 145. I didn't have to see him in the Masiba and uh, my Dvar Torah. But uh, those of you who are, are elsewhere in the world, say Shav Freyal Kampurim. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.